Welcome to Posers, the podcast in which we pose a question that's been puzzling us and then put the pieces together to answer it. In this edition, we're going to be posing a question about the surprising life of William Smith, an Oxfordshire surveyor who 200 years ago made the first ever geological map of England and Wales. It represented for the first time on a single piece of paper all the layers of rock beneath our feet. But although Smith's geology stacked up, somehow his life never did. He seemed to fall into more potholes, metaphorically speaking, than most. We'll hear about those disasters in a moment and ask, what made his path through life so rocky? Was he perhaps the world's unluckiest geologist? To answer the question, we'll be digging deeply into the archives of the Oxford University Museum of Natural History, and also delving into the layers of an enormous sandwich. But more of that when we get hungry, because I'd like to introduce my fellow poser, author and comedian Richard O. Smith. Hello, Rebecca Milam. I'm glad we're using this programme to celebrate William Smith, because William Smith, it has to be said, really put geology on the map. But he gained little recognition for a long time. 1815 should have been his breakthrough year. The year when he revealed his dazzling geological map of the country. What was that? An angelic chorus of geologists being dazzled by Smith's map. I see. It's true the map was literally brilliant, but Smith's life was pretty grim. Nobody really took any notice of him for a long time. So, Richard O. Smith, what was the problem for William Smith? Was it his name? Smith can certainly be a bit of a curse if you're trying to look up historical records. William Smith's were two a penny in the 19th century. But I've checked out some of William Smith's letters and diaries, and they tell us that William Smith first started his popular chain of news agents in 1812. I think you may have got the wrong William Smith there. Oh, yeah. Here's the right one. Will Smith will forever be associated with... Men in black. Maybe try again? William Smith suffered a series of disasters. You've definitely got the right William Smith now. He ran out of money. He had to go to debtor's prison. His sister had died. His intended publisher went bankrupt. His wife ended up in a mental asylum. His work was stolen and plagiarised. His house was repossessed. And I bet there was only skimmed, not semi-skimmed milk in the fridge for his cereal one morning. It's a tragic tale at this point, isn't it? Even though by 1815 he'd already made a groundbreaking geological discovery that laid the foundation for his amazing map. Groundbreaking. See what you did there? I hope you're peckish, Richard, because we're going out for lunch to talk about some really deep stuff. I thought you invited me out here for a nice lunch in the country, but can see now all you've got is the ingredients. Sliced bread, butter, limestone, granite, potash, chalk and gravel. Are we following a Heston Blumenthal recipe? Well, this is all in the name of geology. I've got some bread and butter here and various sandwich fillings, and we're going to use them to do a scientific demonstration of one of William Smith's big breakthroughs. So, you're planning to do a live science demonstration with all this bread and butter and show our audience what Smith discovered. That's right. On the radio. Oh, well, you'll have to describe it to everybody. OK. This whole bread and butter analogy is actually something William Smith came up with when he had a great breakthrough idea in Bath. Like Archimedes, he had his best ideas in the bath. In Bath, Somerset. Ah. He was surveying a coal mine and observed that the layers of rock on top of the coal looked like slices of bread and butter. He published his first geological map of the area around Bath in 1799. 
and celebrated his success by partying like it's 1799. Okay, I can see the logic of these sandwich ingredients you brought along, but surely the layers of rock don't look as different as the layers of a sandwich. Aren't they all just shades of brown and grey? Well, do you know, that's exactly the problem that Smith managed to overcome, with a foolproof way to tell what kind of rock he was looking at. Let's find out how. So say this piece of bread is the first slice or layer of the rock. William Smith called them strata. Strata? Oh, you call them that too. It must run in the Smith family. And then on top of this layer, imagine we have a layer of some other kind of rock. Maybe a kind of limestone. So perhaps we put on this cheese to represent the limestone. It's laid down over millions of years, maybe formed at the bottom of a lake from sediments of fossilised, primitive, bottom-feeding pond life known as cyanobacteria microbes. Latin species names, Catius Hopkins and Jeremias Kyle. That's right, both residing as low as it's possible to go. OK, so we have this yellow cheese being limestone. That's fine, but what are you doing now? Well, limestone often has fossils in it because of the creatures that would have been living in the lake. Their shells are what we find fossilised in the limestone. So I thought I'd add some tomatoes to represent the fossils in this layer of cheese. I see. Mm, Tasty. Actually, Richard, do you know the collective term for fossilised creatures that have been trapped in rock since the early Jurassic period? The Rolling Stones? The Carboniferous Limestones. That's a rubbish name for a band. So, these tomato slices then, are they fossils? That's right. How old exactly are the ingredients? Because if this is supposed to be shellfish, I reckon it's well past its sell-by date. They're about 350 million years old. Well, that's when Mary Berry would still have been a teenager. But I'm not sure you'd find a cheese and tomato sandwich on Bake Off. Well, we've not finished yet. There's another layer of bread laid down afterwards. Perhaps this is some other sedimentary rock. Then how about we have another layer of limestone, so more cheese, but now there are different fossils in it. Because this is later, these rocks are younger and the animals that would have been living in the lake have changed. So perhaps we can use something new to represent these fossils. What would you choose to represent a slightly more modern fossil? A modern fossil? Uh, Boris Johnson? Can we slice him up? I've checked, and that might be illegal. So perhaps we'll stick with cucumber. And what about something else as well? Because you might have lots of creatures mixed together. Olives? I like olives. Or Branston pickle. Have you got a Richard Branson joke you're attempting to set up? No. Why not both olives and pickle? In they go, mixed into this kind of limestone. Then another piece of bread. Perhaps that's some more marl or oolite or coal. William Smith made a fantastic coloured guide to all the layers. Was there anything green? We could try to reach our five-a-day target. There's grapes in wine, hops in beer, and juniper berries in gin. So we only need two more for a complete fruit cocktail. There's absinthe and creme de menthe, they're both green. Well, Smith always painted chalk in green, so we could include this lettuce in our sandwich. And gherkins, they're green. Yum. Then more bread. Maybe this is some clay or something as we come to the youngest rocks of all laid down the most recently. And there's our geological sandwich. So, shall we cut this up and eat it? Because I'm starving. Yes, and as you cut it, imagine this is some geological process that splits the rock layers at that point and maybe shifts one part of the sandwich down and tips another bit up. This might mean that the sandwich layers don't meet up horizontally anymore, just like you find with rock seams in real life. I see. So if you were digging down into these layers, you now might find the cheese at totally different depths. Exactly. But you would know by looking at the fossils whether the cheese layers were the same age. Tomato would match with tomato. Cucumber and olive and pickle would match cucumber and olive and pickle. 
This also helps identify the rock if it gets deformed by geological forces. Like if someone sits on the sandwiches as a picnic. Precisely. You would still be able to tell which layer was which because they'd be in the same relative order, even if it was totally squashed. Smith also noticed this when he had a surveying job cutting canal channels. That's true, though in 1799 he was abruptly sacked from his canal job, and we don't know why. Probably because he was unable to demonstrate any use for canals, given shopping trolleys hadn't been invented yet. Hey, what are you doing to my sandwich? You're sitting on it. Don't worry, it will still taste the same. And if it were a rock strata sandwich, you'd still be able to match up the layers of rock wherever you found them across the country. And it was this that meant Smith could map and colour the chalk, the clay, the oolite, the limestone of different kinds. They're all shown on his 1815 map in dazzling colour. I think it's time to go out of the studio. I'll admit booking the angelic choir has made it a bit cramped and stuffy. OK. Smith's map sounds really clever, so I can't work out why he wasn't rich. Perhaps he really was the world's unluckiest geologist. By the way, are you going to eat that sandwich? Mmm. Extended geological metaphor sandwich. Mmm. Natural History Museum here at Oxford University. Look, over there, there's an elephant in the room. We're not mentioning it. We're here to see how Smith's sandwich-related finding helped him make his incredible map. And look, it's here, part of the Smith Archive at the museum. I can see the layers labelled in a key at the side of the map. It's truly legendary. That's one for any cartographers in. There's a limestone... The oolite, the chalk, uh, the chalk is indeed, it's coloured lettuce. Green, I mean green. <laughs> You're right, there's a kind of swathe of green chalk that runs diagonally from Norfolk across to Wiltshire. And then north of that diagonal line, you can see other lines, grey, yellow, blue, and then this huge area of red. Pleasingly, he chose to depict the northeast, home to countless coatless hard nuts with a colour bright pink. According to the key, there's coal around there. He brought coal to Newcastle. I can see Smith's map must have been useful for those seeking mineral wealth. It's true. Smith could predict where to find valuable minerals because he saw this pattern in the strata across the country, like the layers in our sandwich. But what we're seeing here, of course, isn't the upright sandwich as if it were sitting on a plate. It's like the sandwich of rocks forming England has tipped up so it slopes away to the southeast, and then the sandwich layers have been weathered away. Just like someone's left the picnic out in the rain. I suppose so. Bits of tomato and cucumber and cheese and gherkins, they're all appearing at the surface now, and then their layers dip away underground. And William Smith managed to show all this three-dimensional sandwich stuff on a flat two-dimensional map that is pretty brilliant and colourful. Some call it the map that changed the world. Good, because I was worried it might be because he changed the world by getting the countries in the wrong place. Like... Are you sure the Peak District is in Barbados? In fact, he based his map on the best topographic map of his day. And he shaded his map so that you could tell which was the oldest part of the rock by the tone of the colour. That is clever. So William Smith's map was finally published in 1815 after a decade of hard work. It took all that long just to get it folded up. <laughs> well, it is pretty massive. You could buy the map in this huge single sheet, or in a book, or even in a carrying case. Smith thought of everything. Yet why do I still feel as though somehow Smith managed to snatch defeat from the jaws of victory? How did he end up in debtor's prison? You're absolutely right, I'm afraid. 
Smith didn't have a rich family or a big sponsor behind him to fund the map production. He was a successful surveyor, but if he had stopped working to focus on the map, he wouldn't have been earning. And at this point, of course, he was a married man, and he also took care of his nephew because of his sister's death. He had responsibilities. So how did he get the map made? To make the map, he needed subscribers to help fund it and buy the copies. Ah, so he didn't get many subscribers then? He actually got hundreds, but the production was very slow, partly because Smith was so fussy about getting the map painted just right. He rejected lots of copies. It all got more and more expensive and risky for the publisher. Some of the subscribers gave up waiting and didn't pay. Hmm, so Mr Picky Trousers was turning off his own money supply. He was. Smith couldn't pay his various debts, and so he ended up in the King's Bench Debtors' Prison in London for over two months during 1819. So Smith's career looked to be on the rocks. He was sent to prison. On the upside, I suppose breaking rocks is what he did by choice in both his day job and spare time, so prison can't have been that bad. But worse was to come. He lost his home and his wife was labelled a nymphomaniac. That explains why he always looked so exhausted in these portraits. I assumed it was the 15 years spent surveying the length and breadth of Britain on fault. His wife had nowhere to go other than an asylum, and Smith was made homeless. He must have used a lot of sad-faced emojis in his 1819 diary entries. It was a bad day at the office by anyone's standards. But step over here and we'll see another reason why his map didn't sell as well as it should have done. Hang on, what's this? It looks just like Smith's map, but it's got someone else's name on it. Yes, also in the museum's collections is a map by a gentleman called George Greenoff. Oh, the famous surfer. No, another George Greenoff, the famous geologist. Oh, you realise it cost a lot of money to get usage rights for that music. Where Smith did things by talent and hard graft, George Greenough, the geologist, not the surfer, rose through his connections to set up the London Geological Society. You mean he went to Oxford or Cambridge? It sounds as if he might have taken that as a sign he was God's gift to geology. I'm not sure I like the sound of this chap. Uh, well, he, he did go to Cambridge, actually, but you'll like him less when I say that he didn't... Surf? He didn't invite Smith to join his society. Ah, oh. <laughs> Was there some kind of bizarre initiation ritual he didn't think Smith would look on favourably? It's possible. If it's similar to that alleged Cameron initiation thing at university, then I'm pretty sure that story is porkies. Agreed. It's probably that the society mostly just had expensive dinners, which Smith wouldn't have been able to afford. It was likely an establishment thing. Yes. Smith was the son of a blacksmith and received no formal education after leaving his village school aged 11 which makes his achievements even more astounding. Still, after all he'd accomplished, must have seemed like a bit of a kick in the rocks not to be invited to the society. And it gets significantly worse. The society's members had visited Smith back in 1808 and seen his work. Then they later collaborated with an unwitting friend of Smith's and nicked his mapping data. Greenoff's map was published in 1820 and undercut Smith's map so nobody bought any more copies. That really is low. Lower than Susan Kalman limbo dancing below sea level. Smith was ripped off and plagiarised. As anyone who has read my 1815 geological survey map of England and Wales by Geoffrey Archer can testify. It left Smith pretty devastated. George Greenoff's plagiarised map even had the official support of the Geological Society. He sounds like a real pantomime baddie. George Greenoff... Boo! Certainly acted like one. So do you know what Smith did? 
perhaps what any sensible person does when they want to make a fresh start in life after a major setback. Uh, what's that then? He went to Scarborough. Oh yeah, I should have guessed that. What? <laughs> Why did he go to Scarborough? I'll explain. So, we've seen a lot of evidence of Smith being a really great geologist. He came to be known as the father of stratigraphy. He denied being the father of geology, of course, probably fearful of an expensive paternity suit, terrified that Mother Earth would insist on a DNA test. But what we've seen so far is Smith struggling for most of his life to make a success of his big ideas. We've left no stone unturned in trying to answer our poser. I'm enjoying your stones. I mean stones, definitely stones. Reference, your stones references. Well, to come back to that big question, was William Smith the world's unluckiest geologist? Well, he must have felt things were against him a lot of the time. He made these breakthroughs, yet didn't have the means to make them public or gain benefit from them. Yes, in fact, his great 1815 map ended up benefiting George Greenoff and the Geological Society instead of Smith initially. Massively galling. But what about Smith himself? Did he ever gain recognition? In the lunchbox of life, did he ever get the cake with extra jam and cream? Or did he remain two sandwiches and a pork pie short of a picnic and get dragged back to the asylum with his wife? I'm pleased to report it was the cake with extra jam, cream and double cherries. Yay! Actually, did you bring any more picnic ingredients? I'm suddenly getting really hungry. It's nearly the end of our story. Funny thing, Scarborough turned out to be a perfect place for a surveyor and geologist. He helped the town design a fossil museum that's still there today. He and his wife were happy there, and he encouraged his nephew to train as a geologist. John Phillips was his name, and he rose to become the first keeper of the very museum that displays William Smith's maps today. Pretty good going as a legacy. So, is there a happy ending to the tale? Well, Smith continued working because the Industrial Revolution was full steam ahead, and so surveyors were in demand. But unknown to Smith, the London Geological Society was changing, becoming more practical and less a rich man's club. In 1831, Smith got the call. What did he want, a medal? Yes, they awarded him their top prize, the Wollaston Medal. Oh. And that wasn't really because his luck had turned. It was simply that everyone else had caught up with who had really been behind these amazing geological findings. Smith's nephew, John Phillips, actually helped expose George Greenoff's mendacity. And he would have gotten away with it if it weren't for that pesky meddling kid. Indeed. William Smith gave lectures and exhibited his maps to popular acclaim at English and Welsh agricultural fairs, including several sheep markets. Or, as sheep markets are referred to in the Welsh language, dating agencies. If I could just say a quick goodbye to our Welsh listeners at this point. And while he surveyed all of England and Wales, it's odd that Smith only covered a tiny part of Scotland. He got a cool reception when lecturing in Scotland, although there wasn't much danger of Scottish people pelting him with fruit and vegetables. And goodbye to our Scottish listeners, too. In 1838, Smith was commissioned to advise Sir Charles Barry on the correct stone to rebuild the Houses of Parliament after they'd been destroyed by a fire in 1835. Nearly 200 years later, the buildings require considerable maintenance. I suggest we solve Parliament's rehousing dilemma and pay off the national debt at the same time by burning down the Houses of Parliament for the insurance money. Well, speaking of money, Smith was granted a pension by the king in 1832, showing he'd finally been accepted by the establishment. About time after all that effort and travel, Smith must have put in incredible distances single-handedly surveying Britain. He certainly did. In pursuit of geology and mapping, he clocked up a remarkable distance, travelling only on foot and horseback. Smith once travelled over 10,000 miles in a single year. 
and this was in an age when a woman who travelled a hundred miles a year was described by Jane Austen as a seasoned traveller. Which just goes to show that women have always been better than men at asking for directions. So, can we conclude William Smith's later life was much luckier than its beginning and middle? Yes, the final epoch of his life was a lot less graft and a lot more glory. At the age of 70, Smith died in characteristic occupation in Northampton, while on one of his journeys to fulfil another scientific engagement. For most of his life, not only unlucky, but unsung, uncelebrated and uncredited. Undeniably. But today, remembered for his dazzling insights that changed geology. His name is very firmly on the map. That was The Poser's Podcast, written and presented by Richard O. Smith and Rebecca Milam. Music by The Incidentals and Lee J. Davis. Effects thanks to Tyra Kamori, Sam Mary and Atlantic Thrills. Join us again when we pose our next big question, and thanks for listening. Thank you.